counties. 32. 32 questions? <laughs> My name is Una. And I'm... Am I Andrea? And this is United, United Ireland. Ireland. Every week we take a county and dive into an issue relevant to that county and then see where in the world it brings us. This week's county, Ross Common. And this week's question, who are our sex work laws really protecting? How was your week, Andrea? My week was dingle filled, dingle berries. Uh, I had my, f- I popped my cherry down in dingle of other voices. It was one of the most magical things I've ever been to. It was fab. The thing I love most about it, it now that you're asking, thank you, <laughs> um, was that you can pick your speed that you'd like to operate at. Mm. And that's very difficult for me at other festivals because I have to operate at high octane at all levels. Whereas you can be like, okay, I'm going to go intensely to see millions of bands and then I'm going to sit in a pub for or a yoga studio or whatever. I'm not going to say you have to drink all the time, but you can if you want to and just chill and talk to people. And there's no pressure I just loved it yeah so you can just be like walking along the beach or listening to trad or raving to Annie Mac DJing in a massive club a hundred percent I just you could at any moment pick your moment and speed <laughs> um, what about you now where yeah. were you I was also <laughs> in stop it oh my god I have to say your performance at Banter in Foxy John's on Saturday was a highlight for me <laughs> you have to say that <laughs> no I'm serious um, and Banter in general was great again uh, with Jim Carroll's uh, talk series uh, in Foxy John's which is a highlight for at Other Voices for me every year um, Susan McKay was there former guest on the mm-hmm. pod and uh, she was fantastic talking about her two upcoming books um, and Conor O'Mahony and yourself and our yeah. other pod friend Saoirse <laughs> McKee wait a minute is Jim Carroll stealing all of our Sorry. guests? And our other pod friend who? J-Lo okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah well she was there in spirit Obviously made in Manhattan got an, a nod <laughs> Yeah um, If you can believe this listener <laughs> And it, it, Andrea just like you know was talking about her cultural highlights of the year and then started talking about me- mention made Manhattan and I can just I could just feel you looking at me I was in the front row and I was like she's going to say it she's going to say it there it is um, yes well there was a lot of shit going on for JLo this year so it was it only made sense to mention it yeah uh, correct, yeah. Uh, maybe not Made in Manhattan, but here we go. Another episode <laughs> and we've mentioned it again. Anyway, let's move on to the week that was. <laughs> the week that was, Andrea. On Monday night, uh, our old pal, the O'Devany Garden site. <laughs> Um, the, that was the vote was happening in the council um, we had a whole episode on the hoo-ha around that and the kind of final push was uh, to overturn the deal um, and start again but uh, that attempt to overturn the deal between Bartra and the council uh, was lost by 35 votes to 22 which means that the deal stands presumably and is going to go ahead in relation to that, another vote this week was the one uh, of no confidence in Owen Murphy, which the government won by three votes. Uh, they had to turn to um, Noel Grealish. I was trying to come up with something non- Michael Larry. No, something non-defamatory remark about Noel Grealish. Noel Grealish, he is who he is. Um, Michael Larry. He's also calling uh, defamatory not defamation what's he calling everyone 
That is libel. Oh, God, go away. Um, well, Lowry has his own history with <laughs> the authorities um, and Dennis Nocton. So that's the mandate. I was like literally envisaging a shenanigan like the West Wing going on with like whiteboards and flip charts and everyone going we've got this person on board we need to get one more we need to get one more to get the vote and obviously they did all these deals like we know how politics works but then like Leah Radker's comment of like this was never going to pass with such like like arrogance arrogance you were like he knew he had who he had in the bag and it was just like oh you wait, my heart. Um, it's no mandate, though, is it? Three three independent TDs who... And your second, no confidence. And there's protests, going to ha- there's protests happening this weekend um, against homelessness and racism. Um, so this is, not the, this is not the end of this story. No, uh, absolutely and not. And also, can we just have a moment for the um, annoyance of politics being used in politics? get out of here but like the fact that it was uh, spilled out so much that if this uh, if Owen Murphy loses this vote of no confidence the government's going to fall we're going to have to have a re-election and Brexit is going to be fucked and it was just kind of like a scaremongering uh, campaign I felt to just make people trust the steady board of we have of Fine Gael and Fianna Foyle hosting them up. Which brings us to the stability of this government in general. Obviously mm. it's been on thin ice for a while and now there are serious questions to be asked considering the, the um, that vote was so narrow. I think it was um, seven fewer than votes in the last No Confidence one that was won by ten maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, like how long is this government going to last? There are four new baby TDs in the bill <laughs> this week. Uh, two for Fianna Fáil, one for the Greens, one for Sinn Féin. And that also means that Fine Gael lost all four by-elections. Um, and Pat Lee had an interesting piece in the Irish Times actually about um, Leo Varadkar kind of becoming more of a student of Bertie Ahern and how, you know, this idea, like Leo's a real stat nerd and a, and a po- politician nerd and, and kind of learns from these patterns that have occurred before. And apparently a thing that Leo uh, was talking about at the moment was... Um, you know, Bertie never won by elections, but he kept winning general elections. Um, and, you know, so there's no correlation. And what's interesting to me is all of this strategizing doesn't actually have anything to do with governance. And, and Pat Lee, he was kind of saying, you know, there are things that you do strategically, but then there's also things that government should be doing yeah, and yeah. that the public expects from government. That's certainly... Um, to run the country, maybe. <laughs> yeah, and that's certainly something that this government falls down on. And okay, it might just be a a nice uh, game of career making and chess playing amongst a bunch of privileged men um, in this government. But, you know, is that really how a country should be run? So you also have... Absolutely not, um, would be the answer, just in case you were wondering. (laughs) (laughs) Just so I can clarify. (laughs) You also have, um, you know, further instability coming with regards to how government can continue to to secure majorities and getting votes through with Dara Murphy um, going at the end of the year. And Miriam... Fina Gale's Murphy Cube situation this week, was it? (laughs) Tell me more. We had Verona, we had Owen, and we had your man. Dara. Dara. It is Murphy Cubed. <laughs> Murphy Cubed. <laughs> Murphy Cubed issues for Fina Gale. And well, Miriam Lord is on fire about Dara Air Miles Murphy uh, in the Times this week. But, um, you know, and she's extraordinarily, you know, satirical about she it and is damning. One of my, like, she's just a brilliant writer, she, isn't she's she? She's unbelievable. She's like, pfft. a master. But, um, 
you know, when you when you take the kind of the needling that she's doing around that and how he's just, you know, rocking into the door. We well, was there for the vote for Owen Murphy and tapping his fob and collecting his expenses. Peter McFerry had a letter in the Irish Times um, that really sums it up, you know, says uh, I attended court with a young homeless boy who had been charged with theft of a bottle of orange value one euro. Another homeless man who was charged with theft of four bars of chocolate value three euro. Another homeless man was charged with theft of two packets of silk cut cigarettes. A TD on his way to or from his full time, very well paid job in Brussels stops by Dáil Éireann to sign in so that he can collect his full 51,600 euro expenses for his attendance in the Dáil. I mean, says it all. Um, B-I-T-Z. Yes, B-I-T-Z. Tell me more about the week that was, Andrea. Um, There was a report launched by the CSO that said only 11% of sexual offences reported last year were detected by Gardaí, which is lower than any other type of crime. And if you think about the other types of crime, uh, 85% of controlled drug offences were detected, 81% of public order offences and 75% of murder manslaughter offences during 2018 were counted as detected. 85, 81, 75 and then sexual offence, 11. And there needs to be serious, I mean, there's always, bananas. there's always so many conversations about the low conviction rates and how things never, you make it to court. But like when you look at those stats, there needs to be massive overall of how people are actually And that's 11% of crimes that were reported, never mind how low the reportage rate is. That is outrageous. Yeah. Like I can't even cope. Um, another thing that I cannot cope with is and this is actually good news in our week that was. Who knew? There's been uh, an announcement from the bishop to uh, to all the other, uh, what are those called, dioceses, to say that there is significant plans announced to move the sacramental preparation away from schools. So that's like baptism, communion, uh, confirmation, etc. That will happen with the involvement of families rather than the school being responsible for this and will happen within parishes. So that is a good thing to happen that it's not um, take that people don't feel that they are m- making their children make their communion ah god but he'll feel left out or confirmation ah sure she can't be the only one in the class not doing it that we're feeding into this toxic um, religion just to get a new outfit and uh, not be feel left out I think we need to instill a confidence in our children to not feel like being um different is bad so I think there's that firstly but also um, there's been a lot of work done um, by this lovely group that I can't remember to uh, reprogram this RSE which is the relationship and sexual um, education in schools um, to update it and to bring it about but there's been a lot of then backlash against that you had um, an, a meeting of let kids be kids happen in the spa well and there's a, a big this is kind of like a kind of a, a fundamentalist Catholic organisation yeah and they're spending a lot of laws <clears throat> of like they're going to teach four year olds to masturbate and all this kind of thing so obviously scaremongering where it's actually just trying to educate children um, and I think there's a big conversation to be had around that because the more education children have the more they know about consent the more they know about their own boundaries and the, know they, the more they know that this is not a right thing that should be happening to me and the fact that we're afraid of information 
being like given to our children um, I think there's a bigger uh, conversation to be had around that especially for our schools Yeah and it goes without saying that you know the RSE being the curriculum being redone it's always going to be age appropriate like it's always going to weigh on the conservative side of age appropriate Um, yes so that is ongoing and (laughs) Phil Linnett our fave bass player from Crumlin My dad was friends with him Was he? Yeah No way Yeah Amazing. Um, yeah, they fill in it through my dad through a glass front of a shop one time. <laughs> but they were really good friends. <laughs> they were party friends. We all know how that goes. Um, but <laughs> I think it's really... Well, this is actually a really nice thing. A 15 euro silver coin has been minted by the central bank in tribute to fill in it. Lovely. Um, the 15 euro silver proof coins are limited to 3,000 pieces. Pieces of gold or pieces of silver. Um, and will be available to buy from collectorcoins.ie. But guess how much they cost? 65 euro. Six, oh, that's interesting. Are they? Oh, okay. That's, that's like, I think that's, what is, do I think that is? Bananas. <laughs> <laughs> we love Phil though. Hit me with the county facts. It has a gorge population of 65,544. Small little county, Roscommon. Is it? That's kind of standard in most of them. I think it's like the 12th most populated. Okay. (laughs) That has absolutely no bearing on fact. That is just like a complete fabrication in my mind. It also is home... It is home to the very upbeat... Irish National Famine Museum, um, which obviously... It's in Strokestown in Roscommon. How do you just know things like that? Come on, give me a break. No, because I've been to it many times. Really? Is it nice? It's really informative. Very sad, obviously. Strokestown is also a beautiful stately home. And I think that at one point, Strokestown had uh, some of the widest roads of a town in Europe. I may have made that up. I'm going to check it now. Continue. <laughs> um, it also is home to the Ari... I feel like it's Ariana's mining experience, but it's not. It's Ari, Arigna. Arigna. There we go. Arigna mining experience, which shows Ireland's first and last coal mine. And that only closed, like, quite recently. So Strokestown, <laughs> uh, at one time, had the widest main street in Europe. Now the second widest in Ireland. Yeah, when you go to Strokestown, it's in like the town is kind of in the shape of a crucifix and then this, the house is at the, the top of it. It was kind of um, uh, Richard Castle, I believe, was the town planner of Strokestown who uh, designed said streets and town for the Matten family. I had a lovely conversation with a planner from Dublin City Council at Dingle, Other Voices. We'll Did have- you mention Strokestown? <laughs> no. Okay. We had a big conversation with the lack of forward thinking and planning that's involved in Dublin City Council. Hmm. Hiya. Maybe they should go to Roscommon and check out the wide streets. <laughs> <laughs> I think we need more than a fucking wide street. Rathcrogan, near Tulsk, was the seat of... Oh, I love Queen Maeve. Queen Maeve. Uh, she and the Kings of Connacht and later home to the High Kings of Ireland. So Not it's- the band. <laughs> Why am I making all these noises? No, not the band. But like, how glam. Queen Maeve in her like big cape, like just being a queen. Mm. I feel like she was like the best queen. She was, yeah. She's buried standing up facing her enemies. 
Yes. <laughs> oh my God, I knew it. I could tell. Um, this was also the starting point of Tynbokulina. Tynbokulina. <laughs> yes, continue. Irish lessons going well. Or also known as the Cattle Raid of Cooley. Like, how does Tynbo say it again? Tynbokulina. Tynbokulina. Um, and this is an epic tale in Irish mythology. And it was, it's kind of on a similar vein to the brunch vibes. <laughs> Coo Cullen's brunch. <laughs> the brunch of Coo Cullen. <laughs> um, the but, battle of Benedict. But it was the driving off of cows of Cooley. And what happened is in early Irish literature, um, it was written in prose rather than verse. And it tells a war against Ulster by Connacht Queen Maeve and her husband, Prince Ali. No. <laughs> <laughs> Alil. That's a very um, international name, isn't it? Alil Makmata. Isn't it, though? Yeah. Alil. Who's the king of Connacht? Go on. Sorry. <laughs> so, they, he wanted to sell off the stud bull and uh, the only person who would oppose it was teenage Ulster hero, Kukulin. Mm, back See? to brunch. Back to brunch. So, yeah. It's like I love that like our battles are about cows and bull, stud bulls. I definitely feel an Irish mythology episode or series, in <gasps> fact, coming up. Oh, my but God. But moving yes. on, I want to know <laughs> about the Cave of Cats. Sounds like a place I'd like to hang out in. <laughs> this is like I wrote this. I found these facts and I have no memory, so I have absolutely no idea what the Cave of Cats is. But it sounds absolutely stunning. Let me, you maybe take the next. Well, you have written here that Awinagat, Cave of Cats, uh, also in Rathcrogan, is said to be the home of the Marigan, the Irish goddess of war and fertility, birth and death. What, what, death. Wow, greedy goddess, goddess of loads of things. Um, How can you, well, I suppose... Well, birth war, and war dying, fertility, fertility, yeah. Dying, but, but, yeah. They kind of like could have grouped them a little bit more succinctly. Mm. Ask me. According to Irish mythology, the cave is a portal to the other world, and every sound, the Marigan, like the Vivian, from this uh, year's um, series of RuPaul Drag Race UK, uh, the Marigan, keeper of the other world, leaves the gates unguarded. Mm, scared. That's Stranger Things vibes in there. Roscommon is known by loads of people, which is kind of scabby, as the only constituency in Ireland to vote against the marriage equality referendum. But surprisingly for a lot of people, they came back stronger than ever and voted 57% yes for repeal. So Amazing um, marriage equality canvassers down there as well. Yeah. And also in uh, Pride in 2015, Roscommon um, led the Dublin Pride march which was really beautiful because it was just like showing the the, we, the national we, community yeah, yeah. support. Um, and uh, I think like as we can see with Al Murphy, just because a result comes in doesn't mean that people believe it. Yes. Yes, Andrea. Thank, thank you. Boyle Arts Festival takes place in July. It actually looks like a really beautiful festival. I would highly recommend now that I go to other voices and stuff. Off I go to Boyle Arts next year. <laughs> Now, I've actually put this on my list of things to do. It has the tallest inflatable water slide in the world. Yeah. Base sports in Athlone. Don't you know those like uh, Japanese programs where you have to run up the inflatable slides and everything? Yes. The tallest one, they've got a Guinness world record for it, is in Roscommon. Wow. 
Yeah. I did not know that. that I'm is... booking it. We were trying to go in May, but like apparently that's when the kids are off school. So obviously I don't want to go then. But like, yeah, it's on my list. I think it should be on everyone's list. And finally, Chris Oded may be the most famous Roscommon man. He's even made programmes about it. Maureen O'Sullivan, um, our Hollywood star from Roscommon, no less. Douglas Hyde, they're both from Boyle. Douglas Hyde, president from Roscommon. He was the first president of Ireland and the founder of the Gaelic League. He might have wanted me to be a spokesperson given all my lovely pronunciations today. (laughs) Pity he's dead. (laughs) Today, this week, representing Roscommon County is proud Roscommon boy. Who is it? It is X Anthony. He is a performer. He's uh, he. I vibe off him very much because he is consistently trying to break down what it means to be culture. So he's bringing art to spaces that may not be warranted, and bringing uh, not warranted, but may not be traditional, and but spreading the definition of culture and performance. Um, and I love him. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, United Ireland. Hello, Una. Hello, Andrea. It's so good to be here. My name is X Anthony, or Anthony, depending if you ask my parents or not, or if anyone actually cares. I'm a performance maker uh, from Roscommon, and I'm based in London. I'm actually currently stuck in the back of a bookshop in the Mall, just up the road where Buckingham Palace is, and that Tosspot. Um, what's his name? Trump is just hanging around. It's causing havoc. It's stressful. Anyway, you've asked me to talk about Roscommon, which is a dream come true, because who best to ask except me, the only truly gay person from Roscommon. Um, so you've asked me to say a few words about Roscommon, and that is what I'm going to do. I feel like I'm sort of giving condolences at a funeral, because being from Roscommon is complex. I've often equated being from Roscommon as something similar, but not the same, as being queer. Though it's not exactly the same, you are always considered an outsider. When I tell people I'm from Roscommon, they always shudder. They literally can't believe that A, me, this massive camp queerdo, dancing on stage and, you know, barely anything, is originally from the bog. And that's where I'm from. But generally, there is a sort of a reticence towards people from Roscommon. There is a lot of shame and a lot of, like, weird bullshit, basically, that really gets me going. Even in London, when I talk to people, they are so rude about it. It drives me insane. drives me absolutely insane. But I've always been trying to um, support Roscommon in a fantasy sort of idealistic way, which is probably a waste of time, but it's something I do. Anyway, when you're from Roscommon, there has a sort of, um, you'll realise, even if you're there for even a day, uh, you'll realise there is a sort of built-up culture of absolute, utter silence. It inhabits every space. Every space. Once I interviewed a woman about a project I was making um, about Roscommon, a show called Confirmation, um, and before she would actually say anything, or give me any little bit of a hint about what she really, really felt, she had to check. She had to check behind her, in front of her, Everywhere. Should check, was anyone listening? And they probably were, because it's Roscommon. Everyone is listening. And that's where things damage people. 
And that's the problem. Roscommon is full of silence, especially when it comes to mental health. There is such a taboo. And I am tired and sad about hearing young men in particular, but obviously not just young men, ending their lives. I know one street in the county that has faced three suicides across the span of a few years, and that's suicide from every age group, from young and old. It's heartbreaking and unacceptable, and... When I go home, it, 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 I face it every day and I don't know what, I don't know how people are coping. And obviously we all suffer from mental health and there's a lot of burdens um, and that, this includes me. And what I can say to you, if you're from Roscommon and you're not feeling great or if you notice a friend isn't feeling good, um, and obviously this applies to anyone outside of Roscommon, but this is specifically about the great old county of Roscommon, there is some great support out there. There's a jigsaw, which is for young people. Um, that's in the primary care place. And I have no idea what the primary care place does other than people coming in and out. I don't know. I don't understand the Irish healthcare. It's a disaster. But this place, jigsaw, is amazing. There's also Vita House, which, uh-oh, controversially, is rang by the local Catholic church. But actually, they offer really smart, supportive services, as well as like care, mindfulness, all sorts. And for the young peeps, there's also the quad. I would say, go, go see what you can get and see if you can help your maid out. I also know there's a hypnotist in Roscommon, which I thought was gas, and um, wouldn't mind uh, doing that myself. Thanks for having me. The last thing I will say is, never forget, as my mum always says, that Roscommon is known as a sheep-stealing county. Have fun, girls! So you may be wondering why we are talking about sex workers' rights in relation to Roscommon. Well, recently, three men were faced charges in connection with recent attacks on sex workers in Roscommon. Um, They were arrested as part of Operation Quest, which is this national investigation, basically, um, into attacks on sex workers. And that relates to legislative changes and changes in atmospheres, I suppose, around sex work in Ireland. In 2017, uh, legislation was introduced uh, in Ireland to criminalise the purchase of sex. And this was seen as a victory in some quarters for women's rights and as a positive move to try and tackle the issues around women being trafficked, for example. Um, But many sex workers say that criminalising the purchase of sex has had the opposite effect, that in fact it drives sex work further underground and that the environment they work in becomes further criminalised, leading to all sorts of dangers around safety and autonomy and so on. In studio, we have Connor Habib. Uh, he is a sex works rights advocate, the host of the fantastic Against Everyone with Connor Habib. I'm not suggesting that you stop listening to us right now and start listening to that and subscribe to it on Patreon. But maybe after you listen to this, do that. It is really, really great. He's also an author, lecturer and a Dubliner for the past year. and the only person that we know of who has won awards for writing, teaching and porn. We want to talk broadly today about sex work laws internationally Um, What philosophies underpin them? What is best practice in terms of protecting the multiple rights that stem from sex work, that stems from sex work across the board? We had been hoping to have um, a representative from Sex Workers uh, Alliance Ireland on with us, um, but that hasn't happened. So we're going to broaden the conversation um, more generally and just kind of discuss, I suppose, the the top lines of these things. um, You know, it's an issue that people have a lot of complex thoughts around it and those thoughts evolve all the time as as mine have over the years as well. Connor, uh, thanks for being here. Hi. Um, 
When you learn about laws like the ones we have in Ireland, for example, that ones that uh, was introduced in 2017, and you hear these terms like the Swedish model, the Norwegian system, all this kind of stuff. Um, what do you think about that? What do you think about the criminalization of the purchase of sex? Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I, I don't think happily of it. Um, I think, you know, in my, my, you know, almost all my work for sex workers' rights took place in the U.S., right? Because um, I'm new here. But we saw this kind of stuff coming from miles away because we, in, in the U.S. it's completely just criminalized to do sex work that well, most forms of sex work, even sex work as pornography is not fully decriminalized or legalized in most places in the U.S. I don't think most people know that, that it's only actually fully legalized in a few states. So a lot of forms of sex work are completely criminalized. And we've seen the ways that police, legislators and clients and so forth interact with um sex workers when the services are criminalized, when the work is criminalized. And we can see very clearly that whatever um, institutions and people in power do to sex workers, they actually want to do to all workers, right? It's like the way that they want to abuse and exploit all workers and control them, control their bodies, control their autonomy, all that. I'm getting to the answer to your question in a second. But so when we see the partial criminalization of sex work, people like to talk about the Nordic model or the Swedish model, which criminalizes clients and hiring sex workers, but doesn't criminalize the sex workers themselves, um, or pr pretends to not criminalize <laughs> the sex workers themselves. We see all those sort of fragments of damage, um, those fragments of oppression, legislation and brutality that are still sort of lodged in those kinds of models that it pretends to sort of take off the board because what it does is essentially puts women, and it's always considering women when of course there are lots of otherly gendered and male sex workers as well, but mainly it does concern women. Um, we see how it turns into a rescue mission for the women that actually still has the same disastrous consequences of all the kinds of criminalization uh, that we see in the U.S. So it limits access to safe clients. It limits conversations between sex workers about what kind of clients that they can have. And it reduces the client pool. It stops women from working together for safety, all these kinds of things. And we can see the results of it. I mean, the report that came out from Northern Ireland, I think earlier this year, that said there was a 92% increase in violence against sex workers since Nordic uh, model type laws were put in place in Ireland. I mean, it's not good. Mm. People always like I believe people always think they're doing the right thing for the most people. So people who in bring in a model like the Nordic model feel like that they're doing their best for sex workers when actually a lot of the time it's confused with trafficking. So there's all, you never have a conversation about sex work without trafficking being pinned on. And there's such a difference between the two of them. Why do they keep getting thrown in together? <laughs> I mean, it, the, the sort of... Uh, baseline of that, I say, you know, sex workers are people who bear the burden of a culture that refuses to work on its attitudes towards sex. So there's obviously a huge labor rights component here, but there is also a sex aspect of it that doesn't let us to uh, see why we have uh, this phenomena in our culture and we've had it since the beginning of time and we've had it in almost every cross-culturally in every society and there's something really interesting about this so I think that's where I start mm -hmm. but I also think that um, yeah I mean I think that there's just like 
it's just misogyny, really. <laughs> like the idea that women can't make decisions about what they want to do for work, their own sort of labor decisions, that they shouldn't have rights if they make certain kinds of labor decisions. We've seen that in all kinds of things that women have done in the past, right? So whether it was like, you know, deciding to go to college so women don't have rights going to college or they decide to enter the workforce in a different way, like they don't have the same rights as men. And we rightly, in some instances at least, condemn those forms of sort of like these kinds of shards of misogyny but when it comes to sex work because it's tangled up with these really difficult uh, uh, messes that are you know it's hard to sort of pull them apart and dissect them it becomes more difficult to actually see our way through mm. you know when um, the there were campaigns around changing this legislation um, the turn off the red light campaign which was supported by Ruhama here and all that kind of stuff uh, my personal opinion at the time was that and listening to various people including sex workers themselves who were advocating for this legislative change um, I was supportive of that I thought okay well this is the information that I'm getting and this is a good idea and wrote um, supportively of of the legislative change as well and I realise now in, in how you know and over since then and how my, my thoughts have developed around it that I was exerting the same kind of, you know, mashup of like paternalistic and maternalistic um, caretaking, uh, patronizing attitude towards people that was actually going to ultimately remove their autonomy. And that I too was conflating, um, as Andrea is saying, like trafficked women with, um, and, and always women as well. Like that's how narrow my point of view uh on it, on it was too with trafficked women with people who were um, uh, working in sex work of their own accord and and of their own autonomy and I was wondering like I've struggled a lot with um, why uh, I had those opinions and I was wondering if if you know from like discussing this kind of stuff and advocating for people's rights in this arena why do people like me think that way like why do you think <laughs> and 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 why and and why do you think uh, that um because i was coming at it from a feminist perspective mm. you know we need to protect women but not realizing that the thing those protections could ultimately be removing power yeah okay um so let me explain yourself to yourself um, <laughs> i mean i think that there are two things going on um one is a labor question which i'll get to in, in a second and there's also just a sex question i mean i think that we tend actually i'll do the labor part first i think that we tend to think like of work as this sort of glorious amazing thing in our culture and we have this like work ethic idea right and people with more radical politics who are concerned with labor rights labor issues and leftist uh, political stances they see that that's a, a bit of a sham right so they tend to take this stance like well all work is essentially coerced in a certain way like all work is uh, a violation of our sovereignty. So if 
sex without consent is rape, then sex work um, and work is not consented, then sex work must be like rape as a job. And you see actually this position playing out in a lot of feminist circles and that being stated explicitly in that way. But what we can do and what many sex workers are realizing, saying out loud, et cetera, is say, no, no, the problem is that the wage labor relationship, which is work or die, which you especially see in the U.S. when it comes to uh, us not getting insurance if we don't work and, you know, literally just fucking dying, is that, you know, the wage labor relationship is non-consensual and the content of the labor is something completely different. So we actually have to take those two things separately. So it, that dissolves some of the problems. I, I hope that that's making sense. I, I elaborated on this uh, in an article with my friend, Dr. Heather Berg, who has a book coming out called Porn Work. Uh, the article is called The Problem with Sex Work is Work. Um, when it comes to the sex aspect, just remember that you are subject to forces every single day that are inculcating um, in all of us this idea that sex is bad in certain ways and sex is only permissible in certain ways. So even people that are so-called sexually liberated are still receiving these sex negativity forces, messaging, all that kind of stuff in many different ways. And people who present those messages, and it could be a, you know, fundamentalist Catholic, or it could be um, some neuroscientist who says that masturbating to porn does the wrong things to sugars in your brain or whatever that is, or it could just be a leftist analysis of patriarchy. All these kinds of messaging are very confusing. They're coming at us every day. So even people that are sexually liberated have to undo those messages every single day and ask themselves, where do I stand? What do I actually think? What do I think about my own desires and pleasure and that's very difficult um so those two together i mean the, <laughs> the questions of confusion about labor and sex it's very very hard to wade through sex workers do it really well but even some sex workers rights activists i think might get that wrong there is a message out there now with this sex work is work uh messaging which i think is great and it's taken us really far but it's not enough um, in the sense that a lot of those people are also saying, well, but we wouldn't really have sex work um, ultimately in the future because everybody knows that it's bad. So it becomes its own sort of rescue mission in a way. So don't like the fact that you could see and change and change your mind is actually like really, <laughs> really something. I mean, so, you know, on one hand, like we can give Una in 2017 some shit, but on the other hand, like, no, actually really that you've come around, that's rather rare. So, uh, yeah. And what about like, there's some arguments that the commercialization of sex work is commercializing your body and that you're only going to do it if you're in desperate situations and that people turn to it as and they wouldn't like I think somebody said to me recently they were like uh, you don't wake up when you're six and say I want to be a sex worker yeah and, and like in my mind I was like well I didn't wake up when I was six and say I want to have a threesome but that doesn't mean I don't want to do it well so first of all I did wake up when I was like 11 and say I want to be a porn star so like that's not true I mean I wasn't six you know what I mean but like 
like who does what like you said what they want to do when they're six but it's not true that everybody um, some people do do it because they're desperate for money people do a lot of things because they're desperate for money <laughs> so we need to look at why we value um, what Different why we types of requirements for money exactly but also I think it's important to say that even people that do it because they're desperate for money it might end up having value to them in a way that you might not see it on the surface. So we hear a lot of people who have uh, some sort of uh, disability or whatever that can't, that sort of stops them from doing other forms of work. And so because of that, they end up finding sex work is actually a really good fit for them. Um, and you find a lot of people who are sex workers, by the way, becoming hospice workers in later life because you learn a sort of skill set. So you actually, where you can touch bodies that might not necessarily be appealing to you. And you have this kind of healthy detachment when it comes to approaching other people with compassion. So why I'm bringing that up is just to say, even if someone's doing it because they're desperate for money, sometimes they might actually find something of value in the efforts that they're putting in every single day, and it might not be directly applied to sex work. So I just want to say, like, also, some people just do it because they're desperate for money, and that's it, and we shouldn't judge them because mm. everybody does think, do things yeah. when they're desperate for money. Yeah. What do you think about the role of privilege in the conversation? Because it's often said that, um, obviously, in all in most facets of life, in politics, in popular culture, in, you know, broader, you know, civil society debate that the voices that we hear are often the ones that are facilitated through privilege throughout their lives that then get to a point where they can, you know, represent or speak. You know, we see that in politics, for example. Um, And, you know, I'm often like, I suppose one of my concerns you know, a few years ago was like, well, who, who are we hearing from on this debate? And are we hearing from um, a broad spectrum of people in sex work? Or are we just hearing from like super articulate people who mm. have, uh, you know, developed a discourse around this that um, kind of consolidates various thoughts that would, uh, you know, like like the, even the stuff that you're saying right now. I, I struggle with that sometimes, like who we get to hear on this debate. Mm. And um, yeah, what what role do you think privilege plays in it? And how can we like, obviously, nobody represents everyone, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> um, but how do we gain a, a broad understanding of the various voices? I suppose we don't actually in any facet of public <laughs> debate. So. I feel like the people I know that's not I'm not the guest here but I, I know, feel no, I no. feel like the people um who are being represented by the people fighting for um anti-trafficking are the most vulnerable and they have people fighting on their behalf whereas mm. then on the other side of the t- thing sex workers who are pro sex work and pro uh sex and all that kind of jazz are are being vocal for themselves so I think that there there is a representation yeah, and it may not be the the person themselves but I do feel there is a representation yeah yeah I mean I think that w- th- they're both really um, important things to consider I know that one of the best things about sex worker activism and rights activism and why I've seen it like succeed and how I've seen it cohere over after doing it for um, now gosh like uh, over 10 years is 
that there are so many different political viewpoints. There are so many different experiences. There are so many different kinds of sex workers. There are porn performers, cam performers. There are street, however you want to say it, there are lots of different terms, survival sex work, street walking sex workers. There are indoor escorts, girlfriend and boyfriend experience, you know, all that kind of stuff. There are all these different experiences. And of course, those play out differently in ways that they're gendered, um, in ways that they apply to other identities, right? But, and and also there are socialists, sex worker activists, libertarian ones, all, so on and so forth, right? The thing that I've seen be really effective is noticing that there are a, s- similar factors of oppression and working in solidarity across those political lines and across those identity lines for universal goals. It's something that sex workers, I think, do better than almost any other group I've ever, I mean, it's Mm. really astounding. And part of it is because the concerns are so urgent. Like part of it is like in the US especially, it's like, okay, well, um, if you just wanna actually pay rent, that might mean that the police are going to beat you and rape you. If you just wanna pay rent, you might end up in jail and you have to worry about undercover. If you just wanna pay rent, you might have to worry about mm, what kind of client pool you have available to you just to do what you wanna do. if you want to pay rent, you might have to worry that someone's going to see one of the movies that you made in 10 years and then fire you from your job as a manager at a store or whatever it might be. All the concerns are so urgent that I think everybody is like, you know, we really got to stick together in this because everybody is like against us in one way or another. Um, and so I think that when we talk about representation, I think sex workers realize that there actually is no accurate representation. I get really miffed when sex workers who are, say, socialists or libertarians start attacking sex workers who aren't socialist enough or libertarian enough or whatever. It's just bad organizing. And I think most sex workers really do see that. Um, and we can hash out those differences amongst ourselves in the future as we start gaining more and more you know, rights, of course. Mm. But yeah. What would be best practice for you, do you think, legislatively, if you had a blank piece of paper on which legislation was written <laughs> and you could write that. Leave it fucking blank. Um. <laughs> or, or, or maybe another way of asking that question is where, what jurisdictions do you see legislation or law working well in and how can we do more of that? Mm. You know, there really aren't that many places where anything's working well. There are some places where decriminalization is uh, the the law, um, if you can call it a law, if it's just saying mm. <laughs> we're not going to apply the law to you. I mean, obviously, I think the the main message that people want is full decriminalization. That's not legalization, just to clarify, because legalization means that the lawmakers are regulating sex work. Now, if can you think of people that are less qualified to make decisions about sex and law than politicians that can't even talk about their sex lives? Like, they're the most repressed people in the world, right? So, like, of course they're going to bungle it, and they're not used to listening to people, right, when it, when it comes to... So, we want full decriminalization, but that's really just the start. I think that that's why it's hard to say where in where is it in place that you would do th- where, that you think it's working um i think that you know we w- the the path from decriminalization to um 
you know, we want a kind of, <laughs> I think, I think sex workers would, I, I can't say this with total certainty, but I think we would agree that work is actually in and of itself an evil. Mm-hmm. That um, work forced labor as opposed to, again, the, the wage labor relationship as opposed to the content of the work that you do or the, the efforts you do. I think that sex workers are intuiting and moving towards this idea and the way I frame it is saying uh, what do you want your day to look like not what do you want your job to be what do you want to do for work what do you want your day to look like for me I wasn't want my day to look like having sex with a lot of guys that I, you know, just, well, I don't even have to say that I thought were hot. A lot of guys. So, like, for me, <laughs> sex work was, like, a fine fit. But I know that that's not the case for a lot of people, you know. Like, so um, asking that kind of question. And I, I think that that's why a lot of people do sex work is because they want their day to look maybe not like the sex work that they're doing, but they want time. They want the ability to deal with whatever mental, emotional duress that they're having, all that dealing with, all that kind of stuff. They want to hang out, be able to have time to hang out with their kids so they can't work more than like a few hours a day for whatever reason, blah, 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 blah. So I think that as we move um, towards what we want, uh, to answer what you're asking, decriminalization first. And then beyond that, I think there's a trajectory to the decriminalization of sex work that I think sex workers really intuit and are pushing for. And mm. there seems to be a movement towards that, like the Northern Territory in Australia recently decriminalized and they yes. they brought it under a, like a public health legislation section. So it seems to be that, it w- and it was brought about by a lot of feminists. And so it feels like it that's the the kind of space we should be moving into. Yeah, that was and it th- can be week. done. Yeah, yeah, I think right. Yeah, uh, yeah, like a week and a half ago. Okay, yeah, close. Well, whenever this show comes, <laughs> this comes out. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it, it it certainly can be done. And just like I said before, whatever. Um, institutions and people in power do to sex workers is what they want to do to all workers. What the the freedoms and rights that sex workers gain become available to the public sphere for all workers if you start to consider it. What would my job look like if it were uh, in a lot of ways decriminalized and less regulated? What would it look like if I had the power to determine what I was going to do with the time in my day and so on and so forth? So I think that the flip side is is really important to look at as well. Yeah, I think the relationship with capitalism that you're outlining in a way is really interesting because on one hand it's um, you know the creation of capital through a particular type of work in order to function in within capitalism and then on the other side disrupting that by disorientating what a working day looks or feels like yeah I think that that's really important um, dis, dis, um, disorienting what uh, what being a provider looks like if you're like a guy and you end up being a porn performer, um, like a provider with a family, disrupting what um, monogamy might look like to people, disrupting um, what women's desire looks like for women, disrupting what the sexual encounter looks like. There's so much in there that I think is really worthwhile and that we gain out of taking seriously what sex workers bring to the public sphere instead of just dismissing them 
them are saying, oh, they're victims that need to be saved in this way, this way, this way, this way. I mean, it's just such nonsense. Listening to sex workers isn't just about let's listen to what you want for your rights so you don't get killed by your client or the police or whatever. It's what can we learn from you who are engaging with something that's been going on forever in humanity and that we refuse to illuminate, but you work in every single day. Hmm. Finally, Connor, before you leave, this has been very illuminating. Thank you for joining us. Um, how do we collectively as 8 billion people fix our fucked up attitude towards sex? <laughs> <laughs> That's an easy one to end <laughs> on. Well, I think, I, you know, one of, one of the easiest steps that you can do today, just do it today, is I call it... Um, like don't desire police like or like don't desire shame people so you know you like you're walking down the street with your friend and your friend is like well I'll just I'll just use me for example I'm, I'm walking down the street with my friend and my and I'm like check out that guy I think he's so hot and it is for me some like you know doughy white dude with like big ears or whatever you know like obsessed that's why I moved to Ireland um, <laughs> and my friend is like ew him right like that's a shutting down of the conversation that is in lockstep with societal attitudes towards talk, stopping people talking about their desires stopping people talking about certain kinds of desires and objects of desire and all that kind of stuff that's a really tiny way and instead you can say okay what do you like about that person you can open the conversation up to try to understand now this sounds like a really like silly small thing but I found that actually that this kind of attitude this opening up the conversation attitude instead of closing it down is a way to um, confront and start dissolving some of your own boundaries when it comes to thinking about sex because people's boundaries about sex are completely fixed and certain and also in some ways utterly fragile. I think that our conversation in the past um, five years or whatever has been about nobody violating your boundaries. I think that that's really great. I think it's really good that we're having a conversation about consent, boundaries, how people don't have a right to push you or push past your boundaries. At the same time, one of the things that we can do to start changing our attitudes about sex is take that up and also say, but I want to investigate my own boundaries and why they're there. My boundaries about why I have to tell my friend that the person that they find attractive is ugly. My boundaries about why I don't want to do this or that act. My boundaries even about which genders I prefer to have sex with and gender expressions I like. My boundaries about what other people should and should not do. I think that all that kind of stuff, that self-work is really important. And unfortunately, I think we've externalized most of the work in the culture for some really important reasons I think as well but that dual work um, happening all at once I think that would be really profound because if you just assert boundaries without investigating your own boundaries we see this this is like what nation states do this is like what what th these become these sort of acts or these weaponized acts and the, um, and when it's played out on a world stage I think sexually that would really bring us a lot yeah Excellent advice. Uh, was that good advice or was that the worst advice ever? I don't know. We'll find out. Tune in next week for Bandrew As Review. Ireland spirals out of control. Connor, you're a gem. Thanks so ah, much thank for joining you. us. What's getting in the sea this week? This week, self-appointed, according to his website, um, 
top life and business strategist, Tony Robbins. Uh, the reason he is getting in the seat is because he is suing BuzzFeed, uh, the US publication with an office in London. But however, he is suing BuzzFeed in Ireland. Even though it's out of the jurisdiction, both jurisdictions, US and UK. Um, and you would wonder, is that just because of our libel and defamation laws for a potential crime that happened in the US with the US publisher, etc., etc.? The BuzzFeed News spokesperson, Matt. Metheniel told Fox News the company stands by its reporting and its reporting was on a potential um, sexual assault that Tony Robbins is accused of. And what they BuzzFeed says is, we learned today that Tony Robbins has started legal proceedings against BuzzFeed in Ireland following a series of reports on allegations of inappropriate sexual advances, verbal abuse and most recently an alleged sexual assault of a teen. This reporting is based on hundreds of interviews, audio recordings and documentary evidence and we stand by it unequivocally. Mr. Robbins has chosen to sue us abroad rather than address a detailed account of the woman who said he attacked her and the two women who say they saw it happen and the accounts of dozens of others. The fact that he doesn't even seek to address these claims, choosing instead to abuse the Irish court system and attack BuzzFeed, speaks for itself. So with that all in mind, Tony Robbins can get in the actual sea. Andrea Horan, what are your favourites this week? They're very, uh, very, it's a journey of fave bits this week. Oh. First up, A Christmas Carol in the Gate. Oh my God. It was one of the most magical theatre experiences I've ever had. They open with this bell sequence that was just awe-inspiring and they've moved the stage in the gate um, away from its typical place into the middle of the room, which really gives a new um, aspect, obviously, to the performance. But it's just so interactive. It's just so wonderful. I would urge anyone who can to please go and see it because I can't extol its virtues as any further than I am right now. It was magical, wonderful. There was tears at the end of it and I'm not one for crying in public, but it was just absolutely brilliant. Second up, uh, my Bezzy pal is opening a cafe in Rialto called Daddy's um, and that's tomorrow. So shout out to Cullum Keane. I can't wait to visit your cafe. And the more independent cafes that are bringing something rich to a community that is facing gentrification with the cinema looking to be turned into student accommodation etc is to be applauded so I am all for that and finally um, a surprise to myself I have to say and just shows you how open I'm becoming to things that may not be in my comfort zone but I discovered this band, I hate guitar bands usually, called Murder Capital at the weekend and they were one of the most um, intense musical experiences I've ever had. Uh, during the performance I found my shoulders like hunching up and myself folding over with the intensity of the performance and the content and it was just a really beautiful but in a really sad way. Uh, you were beside me at the time. There was um, there was girls crying a few uh, not girls, women crying a few uh, pews back from us during the performance and that added to the intensity and I just feel it was just a moment that I will forever have. Mm. Yeah, 
they were they're wild like it was amazing performance in, in the church um, so my fave bits this week are all, one of them is also about actually they're all kind of intense bits Fontaine's DC are playing this weekend in and Baker Murder Street. Capital have been supporting them yes on their tour yeah um, so Fontaine's are playing in Vic Street this weekend it's a great end to the year for them An amazing record uh, dog roll and so I'm really looking forward to seeing them play I kind of want to see them now that Sunday. I love Murder Capital oh yeah you should try and, and I think it'll be really it. hard yeah. but anyway that's it I, I saw them at Glastonbury this year and I saw them play support idols um, in Brooklyn and both times they're amazing so I've never seen them play in Ireland so but I'm you excited. know what's really interesting and I know this is not the first time this conversation has ever been discussed but for me I've seen uh, Fontaine's DC on uh, TV shows and etc and I'm like oh no they're not for me and just the experience of a live performance of music can really change your perception of what you experience how you experience it and I think now that after experiencing Murder Capital I can't get enough mm. Is, And but like if I if I had just seen a video of Murder Capital I'd be like no they're not for me yeah I suppose it's about the dimensions to people's art you mm. know and what you feel in the creation of that shared moment when the transmission is happening of live music yeah. and people are being very open and exposed you just start to connect in a different way yeah. um, another music thing that I'm is one of my fave bits this week is First Prive Bravery which is Sirica Richardson's album which I've been listening to loads since Dingle she played um, a set she played a couple, couple, few times but one of the sets that I saw was at uh, Banter in Foxy John's and I was just reminded of how well, she's just such a really great songwriter and I really uh, love that record and my other fave bit is if you are a Wicklow person or around Bray um, Dorje de Berg's uh, photo exhibition Dream the End which is so moving uh, is opening this week at the Mermaid Arts Centre it opens on Thursday evening and that's running until Feb 1st so uh, you know the dark days of January check it out loads of gorge fave bits yeah, yeah perhaps uh, this podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan and Castaway Media with support from Susie Bennett. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack and Sarah Fox did all of our design. You can find <laughs> links to all of our socials on our website, unitedirelandpodcast.com. And if you're enjoying listening, let us know. But most importantly, we fucking forgot it again, Andrea. <laughs> Please support us on Patreon. We actually... Uh, need, like we we have to start making some money from this because we're putting so much time into it and there's loads of you guys who are listening who may not have signed up to Patreon yet please do it it's like $3 a month patreon.com forward slash United Ireland we actually at this stage um, many many episodes <laughs> in this is our 28th episode and we to make this sustainable um, we just have to start getting a few more of you guys in so if like 20 people signed up this week that would be fantastic and if, we've only like 8 episodes left so if technically yeah if we're not <laughs> technically star asterisks if we're not making money for the honeys then we're going to have to look at what's going to happen then Andrew I can hear you rustling <laughs> in the background <laughs> is this in protest at our Patreon numbers that need to be upped please please Look, I've never asked for anything in my life. Yeah, right. <laughs> Lol. But I'm asking you this now. It's Christmas. Let this be our Christmas present. $3 a month. Patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. If you want to support the type of stuff that we're making, just please do that. Do and it today. Do you know what you could do? 
You could think about giving the gift of Andrea and Una to a good friend this Christmas and signing them up for a year. I think that would be a pretty sound present. I'd be into that. We've made a deal in our family home that we're not buying any crap for each other that because stuff is worthless. So maybe uh, some ramblings and thoughts from your fave gal pals would be a great present. Yes. And United Ireland is not just for Christmas, you know. <laughs> Please sign up at patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. Just takes a minute. Now, also, if you have any suggestions of subjects you'd like for us to cover, uh, look at it the If you have any suggestions <laughs> for subjects you'd like us to look at for an episode, drop us a mail or a DM. A lot of people have been on to us about the much needed, long waited for white water rafting facility <laughs> in Dublin City Centre. And we shall be talking about that soon. But now, Andrea, donnez-moi your tuna chicken roll. Tuna chicken roll, mother of mighty. Oh, that's nice. I might write mother of mighty. Roisin Murphy, the queen of everything. I just love Roisin Murphy because she walks her own beat, does her own thing, independently releasing music that floats her boat. Um, And I suppose she's come from a situation where she had the world at her feet. And now she still does, but just in a different way. Um, I've so much respect for her and I love this tuna. It is Narcissus. I've been in (laughs) Mlally. Just about there. I've been Andrea Horan. This has been United Ireland, and that, that was, was Ross Common.